Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, three-time Tony nominee and one of Broadway's biggest stars, Terrence Mann. Among the many Broadway musicals in which Terrence Mann has starred are Les Mis, Beauty and the Beast, Cats, Pippin, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Rags, Jerome Robbins' Broadway, Tuck Everlasting, and Barnum. He also appeared in the Broadway play Getting Away with Murder, and off-Broadway in Assassins, Only Gold, and Jerry Springer the Opera. Among his screen credits are the movie of A Chorus Line and Apple TV's current series Foundation. And now, without further ado, here's Terrence Mann. Well, so I'd love to start us off by asking, how did you first become interested in performing? I just always did it as a kid. I was just, uh, you know, my mom and dad were both musicians avocationally, and we always had music going on in the house, and uh, we we were required to take a musical instrument by third grade. And we could change we could change it if we wanted to every year, but we had to take a musical instrument every year up through high school, and uh, and and so and then in church you know i was in the plays at church and then in high school i was in the plays and it it just it's just something that i ended up doing you know that it, and it wasn't like it was a big epiphany it was like I, I i was tiny tim when i was six years old in a christmas carol and you know it was pretty uh pretty uh, like i've always done it and i always wanted to do it and i always loved it and were your parents or people around you sort of supportive of your interest in terms of a career? Or... Oh, incredibly so. Yeah, my mom and dad were like my biggest fans. Even if I wasn't very good, they just thought I was the best thing, you know, since uh, I could do no wrong. I mean, I was loved and adored and spoiled. But, you know, along the way, I, I learned discipline and, and, and uh, consistency and you know, and when my high school counselor asked me what I wanted to do, do I want to go to college? I went, yeah. He said, well, do you know what your major is going to be? And I went, I'm going to be an actor. So it was, it was always, it was always there. Um, were there actors or performers who you especially looked up to? Um, I would say when I was growing up, when I was, when I became a serious actor, you know, the, the, the ones, the people, and I was doing, when I wasn't playing like rock and roll, I was doing a lot of Shakespeare. I wanted to be a classical actor. So, you know, it, it was um, the Laurence Olivier's of the world. Uh, and then, uh, then, you know, a lot, of, a lot of my fellow actors who I worked with right. in, when I, in, uh, in, in North Carolina at the outdoor drama, The Lost Colony, uh, Ira David Wood, um, um, people you wouldn't even know they were just journeyman actors like myself 
I looked up to them a lot. Um, you know, and I was always fascinated with the Al Pacinos and the, the Dustin Hoffmans. That was my era, you know. And what was your college experience like? Well, I went to two years at a liberal arts college, Jacksonville University in Florida, because I grew up in, well, when I was 11, we moved to the Tampa Bay area, to Largo. And uh, <laughs> I went to two years at Jacksonville University, majoring in acting. And then I, my acting teacher at Jacksonville University was the production coordinator for The Lost Colony, which is an outdoor drama on the outer banks of uh, of, of uh, Roanoke Island off of North Carolina in Manteo. And it was, it's a, it's a reenactment of the actual events of the Lost Colony on the site where, of where the, um, the fort is in, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a state park. So uh, he said, do I want a job for the summer? This is the end of my first year of college. And I went, yeah. So I went up to the North Carolina for the summer and uh, became a, an Indian and a dancer and an actor tech and did that. And then I went back the following summer and, uh, uh, and that's where I, then when I, while I was there, I met some people that went to the North Carolina School of the Arts and they said, you know, you should audition for the North Carolina School of the Arts. So I did. So after my two years at Jacksonville University, I, I was accepted at North Carolina School of the Arts and I went there for two years. And then I left for two years and then I came back in 76 and got my degree at School of the Arts. And then I went into the North Carolina Shakespeare Festival for two years. Then I came to New York and I was here two weeks and I, I went to an open call for the Broadway show Barnum and Joe Layton was directing. Joe Layton had also been my director at the Lost Colony. So I'd known him for seven years. So he just made sure I, uh, I made the cut and he gave me my first Broadway show. And I've been in New York for two weeks. Wow. Pretty lucky. That's... And what was the process like during these early days of figuring out your sort of niche in terms of what type of roles you'd be going up for? And uh, There was no figuring it out. I, I, and, it, it, and it sort of has been my, my MO as long as I've been an actor. Um, I don't look for type or niche. I, if I like a role and it's within my age range and it makes sense, you know, and I like it, and it, then I then I would ask to go audition for it, or I would, you know, or I would just show up and audition for it. So and and and, and uh, you know, I never really got. I, I kind of fell in the cracks. I felt between like a leading man and a character actor. But when I was when I was very young, you know, that's why right place at the right time. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than to be good. Because, you know, Barnum came along and then Cats came along. And, and so, and those two sh shows were like perfect for, for what the age I was, which was, by that time I was late. I didn't come to New York till I was 28 years old. So uh, um, I fit right in with, uh, with what Barnum was, which was the whole clowning aspect of it. And then Cats, which was like, you know, he had to have some Shakespearean chops to do the poetry, but then you got to be like kind of wacky and crazy and dance. So I, you know. Um, you mentioned Joe Layton, who of course was a great director. And what was it like to be kind of in the room with him? Fantastic. Because he was a, he was a, uh, uh, an amazing performer. He was an 
the original Oklahoma, he, and he had directed a bunch of stuff on Broadway. And, uh, you know, he was very smart and, and very creative and funny, and, but demanding. And I was always afraid of him because he was, his energy was so powerful and he would look to you to, to, and literally you got the feeling he wanted you to do something, you know, make him, make him be surprised, you know, make him go, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. You know, so you were always on your toes. You were always trying to, trying to impress and, 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 you know, take ownership of your performance, but also wait for whatever, you know, drops of wisdom he was going to give you. And what was it like in that show to be understudying the lead role? And did you ever go on or? Um, I, I did go on. I didn't go on on Broadway. I, uh, I was, I was the understudy to the ringmaster. And then I was second cover for uh, Jim Dale on Broadway. I eventually took over the ringmaster role. And then when the show went on a short tour from in San Francisco, a sit down in San Francisco, then another sit down in LA, I went out and did the ringmaster and did the uh, eighth show a week while we were there for that 10 week tour, I think. So I did get a chance to go on for Barnum several times. And did you read reviews of your own shows early on and do you now? Um, I used to say I don't read reviews and I didn't for a long time read reviews. I remember reading one review and then that's when I stopped. I was doing rags and the review I got was um, two different reviews. I think one was from Variety, one was from New York Times. But one review said, you know, Terry Mann, the next, one of the next leading leading men of Broadway, you know, he's wonderful, all that, you know, really, really nice stuff. And the other review said, Terrence Mann should be a garbage man. So uh, then you kind of go, what? You know, then you just kind of step back and go, well, none of it really matters, you know? So I stopped reading them for a while. And then, you know, by the time I got to Beauty and the Beast and even Assassins, I guess, you know, I was, I was hearing what was going on and I didn't want to be uninformed. So I started reading. And then how did uh, Cats come about after Barnum? Was that just another audition or? Um, I tried to get an audition and I couldn't, they wouldn't see me for an audition. They wouldn't see me for the show. They wanted uh, Rex Smith or John Travolta to, to play the other. So um, I ended up, to make a very long story short, I ended up flying to London after having talked to friends in London <coughs> and got, talked my way into a, uh, an audition at the New London Theater while they were doing a put-in rehearsal. And so I went to there, I went and saw the show on April 6th, the night before. And then, uh, and then I went and auditioned the next day and I went to the stage door and knocked on the door. The stage manager came, asked me who I was. And I said, I think I'm here for an audition. I think people called. He said, oh yeah. So I went in and I auditioned for Jillian Lynn. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, he, she said, well, we're not hiring anybody now. I said, no, I'm auditioning for the New York company. And she went, okay, well, I'll see you at the callbacks. Uh -huh. So after, you know, 
making my own break by, you know, getting friends over in London and talking to them and getting them to set it up. I, I auditioned in London so that I could get an all a callback in New York. And I went to the callback and ended up getting the show. And what did you think of the way that the actor playing the tugger kind of did it in London? And were there changes made to the kind of tone of the part or? Um, you know, I, I'd always, when, when I used to play in rock and roll bands in the seventies, I'd always kind of did a Mick Jagger thing, you know, uh, that was my sort of, but I remember when I saw, and I can't forget his name, he's a lovely actor, wonderful, wonderful. You know, the guy playing the tugger in, in London, I, you know, he was just this crazy, what they call him, cataleptic cat, you know, jumping and running around, great voice, sings rock and roll, you know? And I, uh, I just thought, well, I'm gonna do that. The only thing I changed was, I would run out, he would run out into the audience with a squirt gun and he would squirt people, which you, know, you get sued if you do that today. But I, at, well, when I got back and I was in the show, I would go out into the audience and pull people up and dance with them. And then eventually I started pulling people up and bringing them up on stage and dancing with them. And uh, so that was my little thing that I did. Um, but, you know, it was just a great number you know you're just out there jumping around i'm just channeling mick jagger you know <laughs> steven tyler every rocker that you can think of you know and um that's basically what it was and were there ever any especially funny or kind of strange audience interactions that way um i remember one time i picked up a lady and then she decided not to come up on stage uh, and she sat back down, but her chair had already popped up. You know how the seats in the, you know, they, they pop back up when you stand up and then she kind of hit the ground hard. And I, I went, Oh my God, you know, and then, but she started laughing and I picked her up and she ended up, we ended up dancing right there. In the room. Um, I remember, uh, one night, uh, Bob Fosse was in the audience and I went, I went around in the audience to him and I stood in front of him. And as I started to, I was gonna like mess with him. And and he looked up at me, he said, don't touch me. <laughs> so, you know, um, the, the, that was pretty much the only, I remember one time I brought a lady up on stage and she, she fell down and rolled all the way down to the, back down to the front of the stage oh. and she had a dress on and the dress kind of got hiked up around her waist and there was it was a whole nother show oh, right and so cats may have been even a kind of more unlikely hit than barnum and when did you have a sense that it would be the kind of phenomenon that it was Oh, going in, we knew it was going to be a big hit because uh, at that time, in 1982, um, the pre-sale for tickets uh, in 19 in, in, for for the for the show was five million dollars. So that's at least. I mean, we were already sold out for the first year, so it was we already we already knew it was going to be a hit going in. Which is a really nice feeling, you know? You know you're gonna be working for at least a year or two.
And were there things you did to kind of get the physicality of a cat or? Um, sure. We, we had exercises. We had games we would play. We, everybody, if they didn't already have a cat, bought a cat, uh-huh. got a cat, lived with a cat, studied a cat, watched the cat. <laughs> and then we would, we would get into the room with Jillian Lynn and she would, you know, put us through our paces for the choreography and how that, how we interacted as a, as an ensemble and as a, you know, the litter of kittens, a litter of cats, you know? So it was very, it, it was very intimate and very, we were, you know, everybody were movers and dancers and we, everybody was used to like, you know, rubbing up against one another and, you know, and, and being, you know, in close contact because that's, that's what you do when you're dancing and acting. And so, um, but I do remember because I had even knee issues back then, I, ended up standing up a lot. I never really got down and crawled around on my knees very much. Um, and Harry Groner, who played Monkey Strap, was the same situation, you know. Didn't really crawl around on their knees that much. And so you did quite a few shows with kind of British creatives and all that. And do you find that they're kind of different than American directors and writers? And- um, yeah. It, it, well, it, for the the directors that I worked with, you know, Trevor Nunn and, and John Caird, um, for for Les Mis and for, they were much more because they both come out of the Royal Shakespeare, you know, the uh, RSC. So they're used to working with an ensemble of actors who they know and and who are always in the shows. So that was the feeling you got. They walked in and they were always really quiet and very prepared and had their list of exercises and games to do and 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 their 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 direction was always very specific which is all you ever want as an actor is for directors to be specific and um and they let you bring whatever you wanted to bring to it always open for discussion Uh, american directors they tended to well the ones that i worked with were brilliant all of them were brilliant um, but they tended to be more, uh, a lot more energy, a lot more um, kind of like slap this stuff up on the wall and see what happens. But they've already done their homework, but they're ready to kind of play in this big sandbox, if you will. You know, but uh, it, 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 I think the biggest difference between them was the English directors were a little more subdued and the American directors were a little more crazy you know and do you like to suggest changes in the rehearsal room well um i wouldn't call them changes i would i'd say you know you you get into the creative process and you hope it's going to be collaborative and i work with both i work with directors who are very specific and you know they don't want to really deviate you know um I've also worked with directors who give you a very wide berth and you're, you know, you can really bounce around inside your own creative box of what your character is. Um, so, you know, and I'm always, because I've been a director, I've always, um, I've always been able to, you know, have conversations with, because with, with directors about where character's going. I do remember one conversation we had with Les Mis, um, 
when we were doing stars, we were rehearsing stars and stars at that point, if you listen to the London album, it didn't have an ending. It didn't have that big, uh, this I swear by the stars, that big finish where he's holding the note. That wasn't there. It just kind of, there was, it just kind of went away and Gavroche comes out and does his thing. And I said to Trevor and then um, um, Claude Michel, I said, I, I think this number should have a big, big finish on it, you know? And then Claude Michel goes, oh, you mean something like this? You know, and he went over there and he played that. This I swear by this. And about two days later, I had this little news news check news section that turned into a to the to the big tag that is now on the show. And what was it like with the chorus line to make that kind of transition into the film world? Terrifying. <laughs> it was the first movie I ever I'd ever done, and it was. I remember Richard Attenborough, God rest his soul. He was wonderful and just like a big father and really caring and made it really easy and fun. And I do remember the first, the first shot, the first shot that I did was that opening sequence where I'm walking through all of the lines, calling out five, six, seven, eight, don't pop your head. Here you go, and it goes walk, walk, walk and all that stuff. And I had to hit these marks every time you know, for, for the camera to find me to, uh, you know, like eight, nine different marks. And it all had to be in rhythm with the music and what they were dancing and me remembering the lines. And it was, it was amazing. I'd never known that kind of um, just mental acuity to be that specific and that small as well. Because in the theater, you know, once things, once the, so the curtain goes up, it's, it's an actor's medium. Clearly, you know, film is the director's medium. And I know there were a lot of changes made to that movie from what the original musical had been like. And mm -hmm. were there any kind of questions around that at the time? Or, Well, um, I don't know. I wasn't privy to any of that. I mean, I was, I, was, I was kind of, I was playing Larry, so I was on the periphery to a degree. I just do remember because I had, when I first came to New York back in January of 80, the first two Broadway shows I ever saw were, uh, I saw a matinee of Chorus Line and an evening performance of Sweeney Todd. Wow. And those were the first two, you know, and I said to myself, well, I'll never work in this business. Look at this, it's amazing. So I remember being so awestruck by Chorus Line. And then when we did the movie, I I was I I kind of went you know I kind of I kind of blinked when they changed a couple of the songs I went oh well I guess they know what they're doing you know and doing these kind of dance heavy projects did you train in dance while you were doing them um I have always or I used to when I first got here I would always go take a dance class you know but not a lot. You know, I had taken a lot of dance classes when I was at School of the Arts and, and in Jacksonville. And, and, I, and I tried to, but I'm not a dancer, you know. I'm an actor who can move well and I can act like a dancer. <laughs> and by the time we were shooting the movie, they were, we had class every morning, you know. So that was where I was taking class. 
And so even kind of taking this step into Hollywood and movies and all that, did you always know that you wanted to come back to Broadway or did you ever consider kind of staying there mostly or? Um, I just, I'm, I'm, I loved being in the theater. I mean, I loved the theater. Theater is my first love. Theater is the thing that, you know, being on stage was what was where I felt the most comfortable, where I felt like I, I really, I really got that, you know, I understood that as I did more shows. So the whole TV thing, film thing, Hollywood was never, it wasn't ever a big, big draw for me. I, um, if you would, you know, it is now, but when I was young, you know, I, the, the notion of doing eight shows a week was such a great feeling, you know, it was just wonderful to get out there. And I do remember we shot Chorus Line for six months and it was really tedious. I mean, it was really, and when I was doing Critters, same thing, when I was out in California doing Critters, we'd sit around for 16 hours a day and I would, you're not doing anything. And I've got this whole, in the theater, it's performance time. You know, you're waiting to perform. You're, you're waiting to, to be on stage and it just doesn't work like that. Film. That was a huge uh, learning curve. And so with Rags, I'd be curious to know, what was it like to be part of that kind of out of town tryout process with changes? Great. Changes? It was great. I mean, it was the whole process. Stephen Schwartz, Charles Strauss, uh, Graciela Danielle was involved, Joan Micklin-Silver eventually, who uh, had to leave. It, it was just great, great actors and dancers, great storytelling i thought trace status and it was just a lovely wonderful experience in a show that was flawed and needed more direction and didn't really kind of get its footing or maybe got its footing too late by the time it got to broadway and gene took over it only ran for i think a week but since then it's been revived a lot you know and it felt like the precursor to ragtime a little bit you know? yes and I'd be curious to know more too about the ways in which you felt it didn't quite work at the time because listening to the score, it can be kind of hard to see. Um, I'm not sure because I was in it. I, I didn't have the perspective of, of uh, to me it all worked. Um, but, and then, and then if you read the reviews, you know, it didn't, they mostly just said it didn't work. It just didn't come together. Um, it may have been also um, the sensibility of the times. Maybe people didn't, they weren't interested in seeing an Ellis Island reminder of what people were trying to do in terms of, you know, realizing their new dreams in America. Maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe we'd had enough of The Godfather, you know, and all of that stuff, you know, who, who, and other movies that did that. I know that's why they hired Jan Joan Micklin Silver because she had directed Hester Street, which was a little bit independent film. It was a lovely film about about the the whole Hester Street and the immigration, you know, the Ellis Island experience. But I don't know. I never know. The more the older I get, the less I know why things work and why they don't. And so, with Les Mids, what was it like to take on this very kind of dark? and powerful character where some of the ones you've done before have been a little bit lighter and well i i'm working with trevor and john and um herbert kretzmer 
um, it was like it was it, it I'd done a lot of Shakespeare in the 70s a lot of you know a lot of big roles in in, in Shakespeare and so it, it felt like you know Shakespeare set to music in a way so the 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 um, the expansiveness of it, the, the 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 big emotions with the big feelings and the big music and you know all of the stakes being so high all the time felt very and like rock and roll you know rock and roll is that too so it felt very um i, I felt comfortable as a performer with doing with, with having that kind of energy um learning through trevor and john and and herbert the, the and having read the book cover to cover yes i do um i was just even more informed you know uh, by what, what how he, how javert was described and and the journey of the guy and and you know the, and the thing that i remember that that was the most telling for me and was the most informative for me was that valjean was was a um, he believed in the the New Testament, you know, a God of love, whereas Javert believed in the, the Old Testament, the God of fear and discipline. And that for me always was my hook. That, that allowed me to maintain my belief system as being right and honorable, you know? So, uh, and then, you know, when all of a sudden Valjean shows the ki kindness to Javert and saves him and from the revolutionaries and lets him go. You know, Javert, everything comes apart. His whole structure of being is cracked and fractured. He doesn't know how to live anymore. So pretty amazing stuff. And so you mentioned that dynamic between Jean Valjean and Javert. And what was it like to find that specifically with Colm Wilkinson? Well, Combe came in already fully formed, you know, with that. He'd already done it in London. He'd already been through the whole rehearsal process. He, his, his performance and who he was as that character was there. It was spot on. And it was, it was the same every night. I mean, he, not that he wouldn't, you know, we didn't have room to sort of react to one another on a given day with, you know, more dynamics, less dynamics here, a different dynamic there. But, you know, he knew who he was. So, and I knew who I was because of the homework and, the, and, and, the, and, and, and talking to him about it helped a lot, you know, because he would say, this is what I need here. This is what I need here. I go, great, great. And then he would say conversely, you know, what you need here? I said, well, I kind of need this here. I need this there. So it was a, a, a really wonderful two-way street of, of discovery. Uh, him already having done it. 300 performances and you know and you always are learning something you always are you know peeling away the skin of the onion all the time with characters learning more and more about them and i'd be curious to know too if there was a challenge to kind of sustaining such a difficult score eight times a week and a very long show and kind of yeah um you know it, it for me it was difficult i mean i'm not a i wouldn't call, i'm not a trained like a trained singer i mean i i sing and i love to sing and and uh 
you know, I, I can hold my own, but, you know, what you had to do every night, what you had to give up every night, and at the end in that suicide scene where you, where you had to go uh, emotionally was incredibly draining, satisfying as an actor, but draining doing the character. My day would literally consist of waking up, not talking, having breakfast, We'd go to the gym, come back, have lunch, take a nap, watch a little TV, go to dinner about five. I had, I love to eat before, I have to eat before, about five o'clock, go to the theater by seven, warm up a little bit, and then do the show. I mean, very, you know, monastic life <laughs> with that show. And I only did it for uh, a year. And then I went back when it closed in 2000 and what, six? Seven. <laughs> and I think you did it even after that later on in a regional production. Uh, we did uh, a um, a concert version of it, oh. basically. And, but it, we had a set. That, it was more realized as it was almost a performance. But we had we, we we it was a concert version is what we called it. But we had a lot of movement and a lot of and that was up at of it. Connecticut Repertoire Theater. And do you find that your approach to the role has changed at all as you've gotten older and doing it over that kind of span of time? I don't know that it's changed. I think, I think I've just gotten, when I did it up there, I remember, cause I was, I was directing it as well, um, which is kind of, it's good because you don't really have time to think about it. You just do it. And that's what I think a lot of most actors we tend to get in our way because we can overthink shit. So uh, I do remember when I would get up and sing my song, and you know it was still in there, uh, and I would start to do it, and I would go, oh, and I would hear myself singing a certain section. I would go, and I would feel it a little bit differently, like or I was, I would all of a sudden, oh, oh, I understand what that means now from this perspective. You know, which was always interesting. And there was always a discovery, you know, um, when I did that production. And so having done all of these Broadway leading roles, were there roles that you turned down? And what would kind of make you turn down a role? I don't believe I ever turned down a role. There were roles that I wanted that I never did. Like I wanted to do Phantom, but I, I don't think I could sing high enough at that point, you know? I wanted to do Kiss of the Spider Woman. In fact, I was I was up for that, and um, but then it, you know, then um, I remember talking to Hal Prince about it, and you know, he wanted me to come out and do uh, uh, not Melina, but the other role, and stand by for Melina, and then it didn't work out for some reason. It just didn't work out. So, um, and so going into um, Jerome Robbins Broadway after this, did you get a chance to work directly with Jerome Robbins or? I did. Uh, I, I was put into the show in July of 89 and he came and saw it and said, uh, I don't like your makeup, take your makeup, take that makeup off. And I went, oh, okay. And then he left. And then he came back three weeks later and saw it after I'd been in it, and he said, uh, we need to go work. Or his assistant came to my dressing room after the show one night and said, uh, Jerry wants to work with you tomorrow at City Center, uh, 10 o'clock. I went, okay. 
So I go there at 10 o'clock and he was extraordinary because he said, you know, you're not funny. It's not some of the, some of the things that are funny. What was funny for Jason Alexander doesn't work for you. You know, you guys are different sizes, you're different shapes, you're different rhythms. Let's, let's figure out what, what's funny, you know, for you. Mm-hmm. So we just kind of went through the show, um, you know, uh, but figuring out timing. Some of the stuff was also about the acting, you know, and, but he was, what he was brilliant at was seeing what my assets were and what I was capable of and, you know, customizing that, those roles for me, you know, do it like this, but do it like that. Now I'll wait for this line, then say that line. Okay. Now don't, don't be so physical here. Now really be physical over there. Okay. Now you can just take an accent. Okay. You know, this is crazy, you know, and he was uh, extraordinary. I mean, really one of the true geniuses of of dancing Broadway. Yeah, just amazing. And how do you generally feel about coming into a show as a replacement? Is it something that you enjoy? Or... Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think I replaced. That was the first time I ever replaced in the show. I think it was. Well, it was, a little, I mean, my girlfriend, Charlotte D'Amboise was in it. So that was all, that was helpful, you know. Um, and that was amazing, you know, because we were, you know, my very much in love and just romancing and all of a sudden I'm going to be in the show with her. So I was really on cloud nine. I didn't have a problem replacing because I was going into something that was incredibly, had an incredible legacy about it. And all those numbers up there were the best of the best of the best. So to be able to, you know, cut your teeth on, on all of this stuff, get a chance to work with Jerome Robbins, be on stage with all those other amazing performers. I didn't, re- replacing didn't really, it didn't bother me. And as I know, I steal from everybody, you know? I mean, if, if they're good, man, I'm like, well, that works. What? If it's not broke, don't fix it, so. And I'd be curious to ask too about Stephen Sondheim, who was another great, of course, musical theater person who you worked with sure. times. And what was that relationship like with him? Well, we worked on assassins together. Um, and I've known, I mean, I'd met him before, but working with him on assassins was, he was just, you know, he was there and he would customize things for you. I mean, he wanted what he wanted and th- certain things needed to be sung this way. But I, I remember one day we were in rehearsal le- learning s- some lyric. I think it was when I was doing the gun song, you know, it takes a lot of men to make a gun. And I was singing, and I don't remember the part, but I was singing a certain section of it and I couldn't get it. I couldn't get the, in, in, you know, the intervals right on singing it. And I kept doing it. He goes, what, how, what, how would you sing it? And I went, well, it feels like he just wants to stay on the same note. I mean, I'm not, and he said, well, do that. You know, I mean, he would, nothing here again nothing was precious to him you know within reason um and you know when you and to hear him talk about the other national anthem and the depth and breadth of what these assassins were and who they were when you hear him talk about it what 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 was on the stage was literally the tip of the iceberg of what psychologically um, he musically 
created. You could just hear him tell you stories about what it all means. And you go, why isn't that in the show? Why isn't that in the show? Well, it's because it's impossible to put thought and, you know, to some degree in the show. You got it, you got to pick and choose. And what was it like for you personally to embody that kind of psychosis with? Well, I had, a, I had, mine was purposeful. I mean, I was, you know, like I was a, a worker who's th who, who, who thought, who saw and find, and you know, the, he just broke, he cracked, he, he, you know, he held McKinley responsible for all of the downtrodden people who were middle-class, who were now lower-class, who were like, who had nothing, who came from nothing, and he felt he was responsible and he just cracked, it just broke. And, you know, the, the rage took over in a logical way for him to go, you did this, you're doing this to us, you're responsible for us, you're the ones who are supposed to help us, you represent everything that could be helpful, why aren't you helping us? Well, then you should die. And what did you think of the kind of response to assassins at the time? Of course, it didn't transfer until later. Well, it, it was here again. Um, the sensibility of the times was we were we were in desert storm. So everybody was USA, red, white, and blue, support our military. You know, we were we were in that mode. The where the country was in solidifying and going over there and taking care of the bad guys, you know, which we hadn't done in a while. So everybody jumped on that wagon. Everybody was behind it. And all of a sudden here comes a musical about assassins who wanted to kill presidents <laughs> because they didn't feel they were doing a good job. Or they, you know, it, it, so it just didn't sit, even though it was brilliant. And like you said, it did, it did finally come back, you know, and it's done all the time, I think. And how do you feel, I'd be curious about seeing subsequent productions of shows that you were in originally, like Cats or Les Mans or? Um, I, I'm just nostalgic about it and I'm sentimental about it. And I'm just, and I'm very supportive and in awe of people doing it. When I would do a show, I would go to my understudy whoever was standing by for me. And I said, when do you want to go on? Let me know. And uh, I'll take the night off so you can, you can get a chance to do this. And I'll go watch the show. And, you know, I always thought that that should be done, you know? And I remember in Les Mis, that became part of the uh, protocol. Everybody got to sit out and watch the show. And when you do that, when you get a chance to sit out and watch the show that you're in, you get a wealth of information. You go, oh, oh, I'm not even seen there. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I this is all about me at this moment. You know, it, it was incredibly informative. Um, and when I go back and see when which the only ones that I have are Beauty and Beauties, Cats and Lemmings, I I I feel like I, I was part of something that I helped create. And so you also worked with Sondheim on Getting Away with Murder, which was his only Broadway play. And what was it like to kind of be with him in that different capacity of not as a songwriter, but? Uh, but much more uh, um, um, collegial, you know, much more, 
he was a playwright out there with George Firth, and they would sit out there in the audience a lot. It was much, it was a lot more fun. It was a lot more hanging out. Um, not that they hung out with us a lot, but you know, you're just you're doing the play, and and uh, here again, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I was very deferential. I mean, you got John Rubinstein, Christian Ebersol, um, Josh Mostel, all these really great actors, you know, and uh, I just felt so much of, you know, uh, it was really wonderful to be welcomed and felt so much a part of an ensemble of a bunch of folks that are having a really great time trying to figure out this play. That's pretty much it. And, yeah. and that was a show that ultimately didn't run for quite as long on Broadway. No, no it was a couple of weeks, I think. Right. And what was that like to kind of be working with Sondheim on something like that that wasn't as successful? And... Well, we've all been there before. Everybody there, including Sondheim, you know, and George Ray. Everybody, you know, you, you always you always have in the back of your mind that this could not work. This could not be picked up. This this could be have a very short, short shelf life, you know. So, you know, uh, you know, and you're always like kind of bummed and you're sad. You go, oh. Too bad I didn't get to run. Um, and everybody was, you know, sufficiently sad and bummed out about it. But, you know, move on to the next. It's not like he wasn't busy doing other things. <laughs> and you mentioned before your wife, Charlotte Cambos, who's, of course, also a great performer. And what, when did you first meet? Was it on a show or? We met, um, yeah, she came in to Cats in the 84. That's when we met in 84 and then we, uh, um, you know, we were kind of like, you know, had a little fling thing. And then well, I went away for like three or four years. I didn't, we didn't get back together until 89. When I went, we, we just started seeing each other right before I got into uh, uh, Jerome Robbins. And what has it been like to kind of balance being married and both having your performing careers and it's been great i mean because we're both performers and we both understand what what we're going through you know uh you mean you know i mean i know what it's like to do eight shows a week when you're when your throat's hurting or when you have a hamstring that's pulled and the, you know and so you know you, you you're not only sympathetic you're empathetic to the situation and you totally understand the parameters of what's required and so it's it it's always been a you know a real boon to have a partner to be there for you and who knows exactly what you're going through. That's great. And I'd love to ask a little bit about the musical of Romeo and Juliet that you wrote and directed. And yeah. how did that idea first come to kind of branch out into other fields of I don't know where the idea came from, but I had the idea that um, I wanted to do Romeo and Juliet and then take pop tunes, rock tunes that already existed and insert them at, at the appropriate places inside of, uh, of the text. That was the original idea. And then it morphed into really just me writing a song with my friend, uh, collaborator Jerry Corman. We just ended up writing a whole score. And, um, 
you know, it was just me and him for months, you know, in a room singing all the parts and he would write it all down because he's a real musician and I would play and sing stuff and I was I was cutting the script and so you know months later we we had a we had the first act you know and uh we did a reading of it and people just loved it and then you know we, we did the second act and we did another reading and people just loved it and then we did a big presentation for all of the money people on Broadway and they all loved it you know and they said well let's do an out of town so we went to the Ordway in, in Minneapolis and and along the way it was so it was on such a fast track that I lost perspective because I was directing it. I was also writing, editing the book, writing the music. And it just got, it all happened too fast. You know, we ended up putting it out there for the, the producers of Broadway and the general populace to see way before we should have. It was a great idea. And, it, um, but, you know, the, I made too many wrong choices and I didn't, I didn't take enough time to really live with it and let it marinate, let it really tell me what I should have been doing. And would you consider, or have you considered going back to it? I used to consider it. Uh, we, we did it in 99, I think. And uh, for the next five years or so, we would, I would, we would go back to it. We'd do another reading of it. And then by the time my, my kids were seven, eight, nine, ten, I, I think about it. I think about it, but I think about it less. But I have thought about it. But I, I wouldn't even know where to begin now. And so I would love to talk more about Beauty and the Beast, which we've mentioned, but not totally talked about. And so some people view that and kind of Disney coming into Broadway as a big shift in almost eras of theater. And did it feel that way to you at the time or does it in retrospect? Yeah, it did. It, that's exactly, there was a big shift. What it was, and I thought this was great, what it brought, because of Disney, it brought entire families to the theater. Whereas before most theater, almost all theater wasn't really geared toward children. You know, I mean, there was a, there were children's theaters in New York. There was off Broadway shows that could be for children, but there was never any big blockbusters or or and and every all the other theater was too too urbane and too you know metropolitan and and you know. A, 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 esoteric you know and, and, and you know um, for adults <laughs> and all of a sudden here comes this you know disney fairy tale once upon a time in full regalia thrown up there on the stage and what we had was entire families families of four or six or ten two families coming to see broadway creating an entirely new demographic you know or adding to the existing demographic because all the, all the normal theater goes came and saw it as well, you know, and then you had, of course, everybody's the varying opinions, you know, on what, whether it should be there or not, but, you know, made money. Yes. <laughs> and what was it like doing a show that had so many kind of technical elements to it too, as Disney shows do? Yeah. Um, I remember we took a week, a whole week to tech 
the first act, I think, just to just to light the first act, just to light the whole, a week, and then we had, um, and then you had all of the prosthetics, which was just so difficult. All of us. I, I remember the the one big telling thing about how smart Jeffrey Katzenberg and and, and Michael, um, who was head of Disney at the time, how how smart they were. We had been. I was. Everybody was covered in prosthetics. I mean, literally covered, head to toe, entire faces covered. And we went down to the Theater Under the Stars in Houston to do our out of town. And we did a run through the afternoon before our first preview. And they had a huge invited audience. Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzenberg, all of the producers, everybody was there and a bunch of invited people from the theater community. And after that show, Jeffrey Katzenberg came running backstage saying, fuck, we can't see you. We don't know who you are. We can't feel the humanity of anybody. We just see weird puppets up there trying to. So between the first, that the end of that run through and the first preview, they got a bunch of uh, makeup artists from around the city of Houston to come. And we started cutting away all of these prosthetics so that you could see our faces, see our arms. Wow. Uh, so, and, and, and ended up redesigning all of the prosthetics before we came to Broadway, which made a big difference. And, and you know, but that was pretty smart on their part. And with the piece of entertainment kind of being more directed at a children's audience, did you find that it was as easy to make it kind of three-dimensional or was that ever a struggle? You know, I think personally, it was just my job to make him, to, to have the audience see the humanity of this being, this person. And it was, and, it, and it's magical, you know? It's fantasy. It's fantastical. It's a fairy tale. So, but that doesn't mean that you you're not having real feelings and real emotions. I mean, I think at at, at every every Disney's movie is is this wonderful emotional core of, of, of feeling of being hurt, being loved, being understood, of being misunderstood. You know, and 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 you know bad things happen and then good things happen and you know the, the morality of it all was just important that we always just try to act that no matter what we were given in terms of text or music or or prosthetics or costumes you know you just have to act through that as it were so i'd love to talk about the rocky horror picture show which you did on broadway and how did that first kind of come about oh well i had auditioned it i had auditioned for it originally when it was coming in and uh, and my my whole take was very much like Tim Curry. Um, in fact, I my I did an my whole performance is an homage to Tim Curry. Um, and they didn't want to go that direction; they wanted their own take on it, which I totally get. Chris Ashley is a really smart, wonderful director; does really good stuff. And you know, so and he told me as much, you know. And uh, I said fine. But then a year later, when Tom Hewitt who was wonderful in the role, left. They asked me to come in and replace him, which I was just thrilled, just thrilled to do so. Was just so excited to do so, so you know. 
And what was it like to work with the great cast that was in that show, like Dick Cavett? And... Oh, oh, he was fun. I mean, everybody that, uh, you know, Penn and Teller came into it. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried came into it. Um, and, and Dick came into it. Um, they, you know, they, <laughs> they're, everybody coming into, because the show is so strange, right. you know, everybody coming into it, just, we're all just kind of, normal and then you know you put on and then you do the show i don't know he was like he was a he was wonderfully charming and 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 witty and 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 he just loved it and he you know it was always a little twinkle in his eye you know um winking at the audience just like what you see when he when he interviewed people you know you really that's who you get this you know just you know disarming kind of really smart gentle man and it was and he was funny and good and with that property having such a kind of cult following and people being used to going to these screenings of the movie and mm -hmm. kind of talking back to it did you find that that affected how the audience reacted to the broadway show yeah there's three there's there's the, the audience is the other character in the show because they do have the the comebacks you know they have the speak and respond speak and respond stuff that you know and there were always at its best you had anywhere from 13 to maybe 30 people sitting out there in a, in a, in a theater i don't know how big it was maybe 500 600 seats i guess i don't remember maybe more but who would lead the lead the chant and and that was when it was great because they all knew it and you knew you were going to get the right response and the timing and the rhythm was fantastic. At its worst, it would be these 12 o'clock shows on Saturday night when you would have a bunch of drunks and people really messed up in there. Uh, you know, really kind of getting in the way of the show, you know, and really being obnoxious. And, you know, and we had a lot of security out there, you know, who would take care of that. But that was uh, that was that was fantastic. I mean, I've never had that that kind of an experience before, where you say a line and they respond, you know. And it, they literally was the other character in the show. It was really cool. And I feel like Jerry Springer might even have a similar kind of wild energy and all that. And yeah, uh, it wasn't the same. It was the audience sat there and watched the show and you know watching watching the jerry springer show you can think whatever you want about jerry springer and what what and the, how he started the whole <laughs> that whatever that's called that reality that that, that interview where uh, but uh, he was a very smart smart guy and uh and he was around um he came into Rocky Horror too, mm. and I remember going out to dinner with him when we were we were we were doing it. Um, he wasn't around for when we did Jerry Spring of the Opera. I I don't know I I, I thought it was and just an, a really odd, although brilliant, kind of musical venture in telling the story about something so, you know, so in its own little niche, that kind of a thing. I think 
going back to your other question, Charlie, I think that was the hardest role. That was the most difficult role to do. Mm. To feel, to really feel in his skin, to really feel like I, I that I, I always, I struggled with doing that one, I think the most. Trying to get it, you know, and really understand it. And I think after um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Lennon, you took a little bit of a longer break from Broadway. And was that an intentional choice or just kind of how it panned out? Or... Well, I was, um, I, I, I had kids, young kids after Rocky Horror. Um, and then my, and Charlotte was doing shows. She was doing uh, Sweet Charity. She was doing, um, um, Chicago, she was doing the chorus line. So I was kind of a stay at home dad to a degree. I was also directing in the summer. I was doing more directing. Up until I went back into Les Mis in 2007. And then I did a couple of workshops of stuff, you know, the Adams Family. Adams Family kind of started the next wave of things for me to do. And what was it like in Adam's family to, to be working with a lot of great comic actors like Nathan Lane? Jack it was just, it was like a masterclass every night to be on stage with, 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 with him and with Bibi, Carolee Camilla, um, everybody. It was just a masterclass every night. Um, extraordinary. And do you find that the audience has changed on Broadway, either kind of who makes it up or what they want to see or? No, I think, I think audiences, if you, if, if people, I don't think that's changed. Maybe what people, like I said, you know, the, the sensibility of the times may change, but, but audiences, I think, well, now they got cell phones. I mean, you run into that problem. And we live in it. We live in a different. We live in our devices world more, so that the, the the respect and the, the protocol and the, you know the dignity afforded the theater, which should be like a church or a cathedral, is I think gets um, diminished by people. But I think on the whole, audiences still just. If they're, getting, if they're getting out of their homes and they're getting on the subway or in their car and they're going to someplace and they're paying money to walk in and sit down and be entertained and have a story told, they want to be transported. I don't think that changes. I think that's still true for anybody going to the theater. We're all the same, no matter what, whether it's 1920 or 2020, all of that's the same, I think. And I would love to talk about Talk Everlasting, which I know is a show that you did some readings of, and then, of course, the Broadway production. And what was it like to kind of find your take on that character, which is so unique? And My take on that character came from, there used to be a commercial on television, you know, Pepperidge Farm Cookies? Yeah. Well, there was the guy who was from New England, you know, and he said, Pepperidge Farm. Pepperidge Farms, and that's where I got the character from, from the guy, the actor who did the Pepperidge Farm commercials. And the, those, those New England, that New England accent where they talk like that. And that's where it came from, you know. And, you know, the, the guy is a, 
here again, it's a fable. It's a, it's a, it's a fairy tale too. I remember in the show, there was a, one moment where I'm unpacking my bag or I'm packing my bag and I have a bag sitting on a pedestal. And I remember I said, I need a cane and I need the bag to have a bottom, the bottom out of it so that I can take the cane like this and then push the cane into the bag and, it, and it, you know, just, just to create a little, what's that magic, you know, so, yeah. But that, and, and that's, it was, it was cool. I loved doing that little, that was fun, really fun. Well, to bring us up kind of closer to the present day too, I'd be curious to know what was the period of the pandemic like for you, both kind of personally and artistically? The, uh, I, I was doing uh, this TV show foundation for Apple TV plus. And uh, I just, we had just bought a house on Shelter Island uh, in uh, August of 2019. And I went to over to Ireland to do foundation. And then everything was shut down in March, as you recall, 2020. And I just took, Charlotte and I just took the girls and a friend of ours out to Shelter Island. We just decamped out to the island because you can only get to the island by ferry. And we just stayed out there from March until September while we were renovating it. And, you know, just, you know, woke up and like everyone else, like yourself, probably, you know, we just, you just lived life a little bit differently in a good way, you know. I remember playing more cards and games with my kids and, you know, more conversation and, you know, and walks on the island. And you know, it was just another time, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. And then what was it like to come out of that kind of with going back to foundation and only gold? Um, well, it was easy. I mean, you know, they said we're going back to work. So I went back and went back and finished uh, in September of 2020, uh, our, our season, uh, we, we did a second season. And when, when the second season ended, April of 2022, I had to have a knee replacement when I got home. No, in July, I came home from, from season two and had a knee replacement in July and then went into only gold at the beginning of August. And uh, Only Gold was was an ex was a really extraordinary experience. It was very difficult for me because I'd just come out of surgery. So I was trying to, you know, gear up and be present and, and you know, find the character and stuff. And uh, a lot of folks had done the show before, but it was, a, um, I'd never done anything quite like that. It was really a dance, a dance. It was just, storytelling through dance that had numbers and and and, and scenes and actions i mean it, it it i mean and and the choreography was extraordinary really extraordinary you know and everybody in it was extraordinary i mean really unbelievable hard dancing a lot of singing a lot of acting amazing people and what was it like to to work with andy blinkenbuehler on that who's another great well, he's this he's a brilliant he's a genius He's really just, he's works, his mind is like so fast and so complicated and everything is so compartmentalizing, but he knows exactly where, where to pick from what, you know. Um, and you just kind of jump on that train, you know. It's like, you know, 
and hold on for dear life, you know, and I hope you're hope you're going to learn what you're supposed to learn and do it right. You know? Yeah. But uh, he's really, a, yeah, he's a choreographic genius. Sure. And what would kind of interest you next in terms of a theater project? Is there a nothing? Role? I, don't, I don't really, I really, I have no idea. I was even just talking to you, but I, I don't know what would be next. Maybe when somebody calls me up and says, hey, Terry, come do this show. Then I'll go, oh, of course, I'm an actor. That's what I do. You know, because when, we, when we're not acting, who are we? And then the final question I'd love to ask is, with such a great career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? Work harder than anybody else in the room. Just always work harder than anybody else. And you better love it. You better do this for love. I mean, love it because it'll, it'll beat you up. And it does. You know, I've taught enough in the university system and have seen enough young performers be so enamored of it and then get into the business and be so beat down by it. And they, you know, they can't handle it. You know? And then some do, you know, others do. But I would just say, you know, work harder than anybody else. That is great advice. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been such a pleasure. And You're welcome. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. I'd like to give a little plug for the Musicals in Mufti series at the York Theatre at St. Jean's, which is back for the first time since the pandemic and is currently putting on the third show in its season, Golden Rainbow. You shouldn't miss that or any of the York's future productions. Also, make sure to tune back in next time on Backstage Babble, when I will be joined by two-time Tony-nominated actress Michelle Lee. Michelle Lee made her Broadway debut in Vintage 60 and went on to star in Bravo Giovanni, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Seesaw, The Tale of the Allergist's Wife, and Wicked. She's also starred in regional productions of Mame, Hello Dolly, and Damn Yankees, and her screen credits include the movie of How to Succeed, the long-running series Knots Landing, plus The Love Bug and Along Came Polly. You won't want to miss that interview, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.